Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. So today, Ms. Jones, I got a story for you. You know, you know, you know, you know me, you know, that I've worked almost half my life in the music industry. Yeah. Not anymore, but I used to. I am very embarrassed that I have not heard about this woman. Really? Yep. You've not heard about her? No. Who is she? I've never heard about her. I'm going to tell you who she is. Who? And um, I just can't believe it. That I haven't. And I only learnt about her after watching one of your favourite documentaries. I know who it is. It's Um, Colette, isn't it? Ring my bell. You can ring my bell. Ring my bell. My bell. In bike shorts. Yeah, oh God. Jesus Christ. I I used to dress like that in Oh, of course you did. We all did. Um, I didn't look quite good in it, (laughs) but I still did it. No, I got introduced to this woman through watching the Helen Reddy documentary. Oh, yeah, so, that was a disappointment. Yeah, you didn't like it. I, I, I actually didn't mind it. But, um, but we're not talking about Helen Reddy because uh, everyone, everyone else who, is. Who that is. Everyone knows who that is. But we're talking about someone who was in that documentary, someone called Lillian Roxon. So I'm going to tell you this story about yes. Lillian Roxon. Yes. And unbelievable. Anyway, so... just. I have heard of her, by the way, and I am really surprised that you haven't. I haven't. I know, right? She's one of the best writers. Rock writers. Come on, tell me about her. Lillian Ropschitz. 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 She was was born in Italy in 1932 to a Jewish family. She was born in Italy? Yeah. What? In 1937, when she was just five, the family migrated to Australia because there was some crazy shit going on with Mussolini and oh, yeah, we know about that. and Hitler. <laughs> so the family fled and they went to Britain and then they ended up in Melbourne. Wow. Yes. Shortly after they settled in Brisbane and um, it was Lillian who suggested they change their name to Roxham, their last name to Roxham. What? It's a Which cool name. Did. Yeah. Yeah. What was it? Rock shit? It was Rop Shits. Rop Shits. Yeah. So Lillian uh, went to St Hilda's boarding school in Southport uh, for three years before attending Brisbane State High School. Wow. She always had hopes of becoming a journalist uh, and when she was just 14, she sold her first article to Woman's Magazine, which is now Woman's Day. Is that still going, Woman's Day? I don't even know if that magazine's still... I think it is. Yeah. Um, She left school in 1949 and after failing to get even a copywriter's job, she decided to move to Sydney and enrol into Sydney Uni and uh, she thought, quote, it would be a nice place to hang out and meet boys. True. So during the 1950s in Sydney, there was this network of intellectuals and bohemians known as the push 
The push, why? Yeah, so the push were like this little group um, and they had a very uh, libertarian view towards sex and politics and Lillian really appreciated their kind of thoughts on the world and their views and she was like, I'm going to join your gang. Um, They would meet in pubs in Sydney, in particular the (gasps) Slip-In, back of the Slip-In bar, which we famously know as where Mary met her prince. Frederick. Yes. Um, he slipped it in. The push was made up. <laughs> Ew. The push was made up of labourers, <laughs> musicians, lawyers, criminals, journalists and public servants, as well as staff and students from Sydney University. Um, so at the time they would meet, the pubs were closing at six o'clock at that time in Sydney. The wow. pubs would close. They would all go out and have dinner at an Italian restaurant, which I love. Oh. They would get a three-course meal for 26 cents. No. And then they would all go back to someone's house and most of the time they would go back to Lillian's house and she would host everyone Do back Do you know where house. she lived? Um, I think at the time um, Kings – well, she spent a lot of time around Kings Cross. So they said – some of the stuff I've read, it says that she would go out to pubs in Kings Cross and then they'd go back to her place. So I'm assuming it would be oh. close – close by she probably lived in Wollamaloo she just loved the social aspect of of hosting people and you know having people at her house and having drinks and so she was kind of known in the group as that so she during these years um with the push she established her reputation as being a witty and independent woman she was a natural at seeking out new talent and um was really always passionate about promoting what she believed in and she was actually living with her boyfriend at the time which during the 50s and 60s was a big no no so it was kind of unheard of in those days she was still following her passion and desire to be a journalist and uh wanting to write for a living. So she starts working as a publicist for a department store called Anthony Horden and Sons in Sydney in 1957. Um, And then she's hired by a magazine called Weekend, which was owned by Frank Packer. We know know Frank Packer. Patriarch of the Packer family. Yeah. So in 1959, she decides to move to New York to become uh, one of... Australia's first female overseas correspondents. Wow. And she's one of the first Australian journalists, in fact, to establish a high profile in the US. Wow. Uh, in 1962, she becomes the New York correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald. Wow. And over the next 10 years, she reports on arts, entertainment, women and women's issues for the Australian, American and British press. Now, fun fact. Yeah. She used to sit opposite Darren Hinch. In New York? Yep. What was he doing at? At that time. He was also working for, as a correspondent. What? Yeah. So, I know, right? I bet they got on the piss together. <laughs> New York in the 1960s. Shortly after noon on November 22, 1963, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated as he rode in a motorcade through Dealey Plaza in downtown Dallas, Texas. The nation is left mourning and in a state of shock. 1964. 
Beatlemania hits New York when thousands of hyperventilating fans converge upon Pan Am Flight 101 hoping to catch a glimpse of John, Paul, George, and Ringo. The Fab Four have just skyrocketed to the top of the charts with I Wanna Hold Your Hand. 1969, musical history is made when over 400,000 people turn up to a dairy farm in Bethel, New York, for the very first Woodstock. Music legends Jimi Hendrix, The Grateful Dead, and Joni Mitchell are among 32 acts that will perform across three days. Why I order? Yeah. Okay, so it's the mid-1960s in New York and Lillian is becoming obsessed with pop music. Bands like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones the are all just emerging. Where did they come from? <laughs> Beatles? Heard of them? <laughs> no. So Lillian is one of the first journalists who starts writing about pop music um, and she is one of the first uh, writers to start reporting about them from like a journalistic sense and at the time no one was really taking pop music seriously they just thought it was like music was just a bit like a flash in the pan these people would come and go and everyone's kind of making a bit of a big fuss about it and um, but Lillian always knew that pop music was going to be a really big business and that people were going to make uh, lots of money. She's famously known for asking uh, the Beatles manager so Epstein yeah Exactly. So, are you a millionaire? Are you a millionaire yet? So, Danny Fields, who was a music manager at the time, he'll go on to become one of the most influential figures in punk music. Remembers being in the room and hearing her ask that question, and all of the other journalists were like, "What? You can't ask." That. Like a millionaire? Like this is from music? Are you oh, kidding? Like right. she thinks this is a business? Like a duh? What a dum dum. Yeah, so while journalists were busy reporting on anything but music, fans started to take the reportage into their own hands. And this is where fanzines come from because um, no, no journalists at the time were reporting, but there was a hunger for music fans and a, and a curiosity for music fans to learn about their favourite artists, but no journalists were writing about it. So fanzines were created and fans started writing about it. So the journalists and the publishers started to feel a little bit like they were being taken over and they're like, hang yeah, on a minute. They are. What are the, the fans are writing about this shit? Why aren't we writing about it? Mm. So music journalism was kind of born and people started to take it a little bit more seriously. So, and it started to get more attention. Lillian started to kind of introduce it more and more to the Sydney Morning Herald and say that she thinks that she should be able to sort of start writing articles about music. Danny Field and Lillian, um, so Danny introduces her to, they become good friends after that press conference because he's like, I like that chick. She's got a bit of spunk about it. He's drawn to her boldness and she's just this no bullshit approach to journalism. He ends up taking her to Max's, uh, Max's Kansas City nightclub. So Where's that? This is in New York. Yeah. Now, Max's Kansas City was an institution. It was at the forefront of the 1960s counterculture um, and it was a gathering spot for musicians, poets, poets, artists and politicians in the 1960s and 70s. It was a favourite hangout of Andy Warhol. Of course it was. And his entourage. Um, the Velvet Underground played there, um, including one of their last shows with Lou Reed. It was a home base for the glam rock scene. So David Bowie started there, Iggy Pop, 
Alice Cooper. Patty Smith used to go there. Like it was just freaking fly on the wall. Cool. Oh my lord! Imagine. So she gets um introduced to this Max's, and she's like, "Holy shit! This all these people are amazing. This place is amazing." So she holds what was known as an announcement party. So she wants to announce herself to the socialite world, um, which is something that you know you did back then in the in the sixties. You had an announcement party, and you said, "I'm here, people." Here I am. So she became quite sort of well-known and she started to fit right into the scene at Max's and it wasn't long before she's hanging out with Bob Dylan and Andy Warhol and her and Danny set up shop uh, in the back room and it was known as Lillian's Parlour and it was the secret back room of Max's. Um, She becomes somewhat of a mother figure to artists like Patti Smith and Deborah Harry Deb Harry at the time. So um, they basically trusted her. She was, um, like I said, a mother figure. She didn't drink. She didn't take drugs. She was, really? She was a little bit older than them as well. She was probably about 10 years older kind of than most of these kind of emerging um, pop stars. And the managers knew that if they would go to her um, and they would listen to the music and they had the opportunity to listen first that she would could either make or break a new artist right by writing about by them. writing about them so and people would listen to her they respected her opinion about music and she was sort of starting to you know make her way up the the ranks of like people to kind of take note of in terms of in that music in the music scene so she was one of the first mainstream journalists to treat popular music with any degree of seriousness and to regard it not as a trivial flash in the pan but as an important social phenomenon so when australians would come to visit she would always take them under her wing and she would take them to max's and introduce them to all of these amazing people so which is famous famously in the helen ready documentary when helen comes to new york she's asked to hook up with Lillian and Lillian takes her to Max's and it's where Helen goes on to meet her husband, yada, yada. Um, but there is a story of when um, the Easy Beats come to New York and um, they're sort of following in the Beatles' footsteps. So she can't, the, the Easy Beats come, she goes on tour with them and she gets kicked off the tour because she sleeps with the whole band. <laughs> <laughs> and she's not a drinker? She's not a drinker, doesn't take she drugs. She all that sober. She- Jesus Christ. <laughs> and she's also known to have said I fall as- uh, to fall asleep instead of counting sheep I count lovers. Yeah. So um wow, she was very ahead of her time. Very ahead of her time. So she was obviously had like a really kind of open attitude, wasn't shy about sex and it was possibly a bit of a hangover from her push days where Back then, it was all just footloose and fancy free. Yeah. Lillian starts introducing more and more music to the Sydney Morning Herald, um, and then she ends up pairing up with a woman called Linda Eastman. Does that Never. ring a bell? Oh, Linda Eastman, Paul McCartney's wife. Yeah. So she's a photographer at the time. So yes. the two of them would just. Can't sing for shit. <laughs> no, she was a photographer. Yeah, she should have stuck with that. <laughs> did she sing after? Did she start? He started a band after the Beatles called Wings. Oh, was and she in Wings? insisted she be a part of it. They used to have to – it's very famous what they – the producers and the audio engineers had to remove her vocal. It was so bad. And people leaked it. 
just her vocal, how off, like she's tone deaf. Oh, wow. But you couldn't argue with Paul. (laughs) Side note. Back to brain surgery. That's brilliant. Rocket surgery. Rocket surgery. So, yeah, so they would team up um, and they, you know, they go on boat tours with the Rolling Stones. They'd hang out at Andy Warhol's factory. Like, Mm. can you imagine how fucking cool it would have been? So her articles about the burgeoning rock scene are now credited as being the foundation stones of serious music journalism. And it's the reason why later on she'll she'll go on to be described as the mother of rock. Um, she starts a weekly radio show called Discotech, um, where she re- review music from all over the world. And she's basically the original Molly Meldrum. Yeah. So she'd come on and be like, so I listened to this new album from this little band called The Rolling Stones. Not really my cup of tea, if you ask me, but um, give it a listen. By about track seven, it gets pretty good. <laughs> It's hilarious. So, yeah, you can listen to it. I actually found all of the recordings on the um, uh, the archive, the Sound and mm-hmm. Film Archive yep. website. Um, but they're all there. You can listen to them and it's amazing. And she just talks like this. She's no bullshit like, oh, listen to this new album from someone called Bette Midler. It's oh, not yeah. bad. It's all right. It's all right. This kid, Elton John, this never <laughs> heard of him. David, Doing all right. David Bowie. <laughs> Where's makeup? <laughs> yeah. Sounds all right. Though. So that was in 1971. It was syndicated across 250 radio stations in the United States. Wow. Um, she spoke with confidence and authority, especially given that that was uh, largely a man's world yes. back then. Um, and she was truly ahead of her time. She did meet and become friends with David Bowie and his first wife, Angie, and um, she joined them on uh, the, his first tour in the USA in 1972 and she was a major cha- major champion of Bowie's music and helping him break into the US market. So people listened to her. So basically if she said it was cool, everyone jumped on the bandwagon. Now what she's most famously known for is um, writing the world's very first rock encyclopedia. So while she was still working and filing stories for the Sydney Morning Herald, she was also writing a uh, 611-page encyclopedia which had over 1,200 alphabetical entries of uh, rock music and where rock music was at the time. It was published in 1969 and um, the New York Times described it as the most complete book on rock music and rock culture ever written. Wow. And it would be used as a template for many that followed after it. Her uh, encyclopedia was reissued in uh, 1978 by Ed Naha. Oh, yeah. So after uh, her encyclopedia was released, she became hot property uh, and everyone wanted a piece of her. Um, She started to expand her profile and in the 70s she became more widely known for her feminist stance. She wrote a groundbreaking and highly personal report about the August 1970s Women's Rights March in New York Mm -hmm. and she published the uh, article in the Sydney Morning Herald under the title There is a Tide in the Affairs of women she began the piece with this is the hardest piece I've ever had to write in my life I'm supposed to be telling it briskly and factually and without bias 
fat chance. I'm so biased, I can hardly think straight. Wow. She goes on to say, mainly I think what women want is to be taken seriously, but a woman has always been a bit of a joke. Women don't even take one another seriously. Mm. So while she was getting into um, all of this kind of women's uh, rights movement, she is um, still friends with Helen Reddy and she ends up sending the press clippings and articles to Helen who's living in LA at the time. And it's because of this that Helen will go on to write, I am woman and um, was a massive influence for her in writing that song um, and getting kind of Helen into that sort of women's movement and that song that basically has become the anthem for um, for, for women women's liberation. Liberation, yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't believe they made a movie about Helen Reddy. This is way more interesting. Yeah, I know. There's a, there's a documentary actually that was um, um, entered into the Melbourne Film Festival, which I've watched. This year? No, it was a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, called the Mother of Rock, Lillian Roxon story, wow. and it's I, yeah, you can I, I got it off iTunes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, fascinating. So mm. so cool. Darren Hinch is on it. He gets interviewed. It's yeah, it's it's cool. Even with even with Dar- Darren. Darren. Um, so while she's writing the encyclopedia and still keeping up her job, this is really having a, a toll on her health and she develops severe asthma um, and she also starts getting really bad side effects from all of the drugs she's taking. The air in New York apparently at the time is so bad. The mm. smog um, was, was really, really bad and this was only making her asthma um, worse. So one night, uh, Helen Reddy was set to perform and is performing in New York um, and Lillian is supposed to go with Darren. They're supposed to go together and um, Darren ends up calling her and she says, look, I just, I'm just not feeling well. Um, come and pick up the tickets. You can have the tickets. You'd go and take a date, um, but I'm just going to stay in tonight. So Darren goes to pick up the tickets. He talks about seeing her. She's not looking great. Her health has kind of really um, taken a bit of a turn and um, Darren ends up going to the concert and the next day he calls her and um, she doesn't answer the phone. He gets, starts getting quite worried and for the next two days he's calling her with no response and um, her friends start to get quite worried. Um, so they summon the police, they break into her apartment and um, they find her passed away. So Lillian Roxon died at the age of 41 on the 10th of August 1973 after suffering a severe asthma attack (gasps) in her New York apartment. Oh, that's so sad. Uh, Darren actually had to go and identify her body. Oh, that's awful. And um, yeah, it's really heartwarming to watch him tell that story because they were really good mates. So a memorial service is held for her at the Universal Funeral Chapel in New York. One of Roxon's last print articles reported on the landmark New York concerts at Max's Kansas City by E. Pop and the Stooges. And her final piece uh, filed in early August was on the rising British glam rock star Mark Bolan, who is uh, the lead singer of T-Rex. She wrote a novel loosely based on her years in Sydney, which was never published, but the manuscript now resides in Sydney's Mitchell Library, um, along with her large collection of letters and other papers donated by family and her close friends. Wow. I can't believe how much she did. Yeah. And she died at 41. I know. In 1998, Yvonne Ruskin, in her book High on Rebellion, called Lillian Roxon the mother of rock and roll journalism. Mm. Her niece, Nicola Roxon, 
mm-hmm. was Federal Minister for Health and mm-hmm. Ageing between 2007 and 2011, and also mm-hmm. the Attorney General from 2011 mm-hmm. to 2013. Wow. And that is the story of the amazing Lillian Roxon. Well, that, that was very good. Very, very good. Rest in peace, Lillian. What I know. a rock star. Yeah. It's very cool. I mean, I, mean, I watched the Helen Reddy thing and I automatically just went, hang mm. on a minute. Like, she's who is this one. woman? Yeah. You know? Yeah. She's, she's living in New York in that, like, mm. being a yeah. journalist and yeah, she's yeah. Australian and yeah. she's, like, hanging out with, like, David Bowie yeah. and Bob Dylan and, like, yeah. It's funny, the girl yeah, that played her cool in the um, biopic, Danielle McDonald, I think her name is, Australian girl. Yes. She's actually been working in America for 10 years and to play Lillian, wow. she had to relearn her Australian accent. Oh, really? Yeah, get rid of the R's. And because um, she does, there is a twang of, of the R's still yes. in that character yes. as well. And I thought, I wonder if they did that on purpose to make it, Mm, no, Sound that was like I think she's Danielle. <laughs> right, right. She's been speaking with an Ast- American Australian accent uh-huh. and then just an American accent for so long in all of the movies she's and shows she's done. Uh-huh. So she's done very well for young yeah. Australian. She, what else was she in though? She was in um, Pud Pudlin Pudlin Dumplin Dumplin Pudlin 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 Dumplin. Dumplings and puddlings. She was in that bird box with Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sandra Bullock. Yes, yes. Ever heard of her? Yeah, um, yeah I've heard of her. Yeah, she's good. She's gonna do really well. Yeah. Sandra. Yeah, yeah. Good um, talent, big talent. But yeah, that actress is mm. is, is good. Mm. So yeah. But yeah. she did a good good job of Lillian. She did. Yeah, she really did. Very sad. Yeah. Little story. I can't believe how much she squeezed into a short life. Mm, I know. Like it goes to show just how lazy I am. Yeah. <laughs> just how little I've done. But it's not about me, Annie. No, it's It's not. about you. It's about Lillian Roxon. It's about Lillian. Wow. We salute you. We do salute you, Lil. producers of this podcast is me, Evie Jones, and of course, Annie Potatoes. But we've also got Sam Peterson. He's our producer, our editor, our wine boy, our whipping boy. He does everything. And he's also got a great podcast called Confessions of the Idiots. You know, if you all listen to us, we appreciate you. Follow us on Instagram at chickstreet underscore podcast. And you can email us at mychickstreet at gmail.com.